Having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great, but having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 7 The Entente Cordiale is Sealed There are moments and moments. The present one belonged to the more painful variety. Even to my exhausted mind, it was plain that there was a need here for explanations. An Irishman's croquet lawn is his castle, and strangers cannot plunge in through hedges without inviting comment. Unfortunately, speech was beyond me. I could have emptied a water-butt, laid down and gone to sleep, or melted ice with a touch of the finger, but I could not speak. The conversation was opened by the other man in whose restraining hand Aunt Elizabeth now lay, outwardly resigned, but inwardly, as I, who knew her haughty spirit, could guess, boiling with baffled resentment. I could see her looking out of the corner of her eye, trying to estimate the chances of getting in one good hard peck with her aquiline beak. "'Come right in,' said the man pleasantly. "'Don't knock.' I stood there, gasping. I was only too well aware that I presented a quaint appearance. I had removed my hat before entering the hedge, and my hair was full of twigs and other foreign substances. My face was moist and grimy. My mouth hung open. My legs felt as if they had ceased to belong to me. "'I must appall—' I began, and ended the sentence with gulps. The elderly gentleman looked at me with what seemed to be indignant surprise. His daughter appeared to my guilty conscience to be looking through me. Aunt Elizabeth sneered. The only friendly face was the man's. He regarded me with a kindly smile, as if I were some old friend who had dropped in unexpectedly. "'Take a long breath,' he advised. I took several, and felt better. "'I must apologize for this intrusion,' I said successfully. "'Unwarrantable would have rounded off the sentence neatly, but I would not risk it. "'It would have been mere bravado to attempt unnecessary words of five syllables.' "'I took in more breath. "'The fact is, I did—' 
didn't know there was a private garden beyond the hedge. If you will give me my hand—' I stopped. Aunt Elizabeth was looking away, as if endeavouring to create an impression of having nothing to do with me. I am told by one who knows that hens cannot raise their eyebrows, not having any. But I am prepared to swear at this moment Aunt Elizabeth raised hers. I will go further. She sniffed. "'Here you are,' said the man, "'though it's hard to say good-bye.' He held out the hen to me, and at this point a hitch occurred. He did his part, the letting go, all right. It was in my department, the taking hold, that the thing was bungled. Aunt Elizabeth slipped from my grasp like an eel, stood for a moment eyeing me satirically with her head on one side, then fled and entrenched herself in some bushes at the end of the lawn. There are times when the most resolute man feels that he can battle no longer with fate, when everything seems against him, and the only course is a dignified retreat. But there is one thing essential to a dignified retreat. You must know the way out. It was the lack of that knowledge that kept me standing there, looking more foolish than anyone ever looked since the world began. I could not retire by way of the hedge. If I could have leaped the hedge with a single debonair bound, that would have been satisfactory. But the hedge was high, and I did not feel capable at the moment of achieving a debonair bound over a footstool. The man saved the situation. He seemed to possess that magnetic power over his fellows which marks the born leader. Under his command we became an organized army. The common object, the pursuit of the elusive Aunt Elizabeth, made us friends. In the first minute of the proceedings the Irishman was addressing me as me dear boy, and the man, who had introduced himself as Mr. Chase, a lieutenant I learned later in His Majesty's Navy, was shouting directions to me by name. I have never assisted at any ceremony in which formality was so completely dispensed with. The ice was not merely broken, it was shivered into a million fragments. "'Go in and drive her out, Garnet!' shouted Mr. Chase. "'In my direction, if you can. Look out on the left, Phyllis!' Even in that disturbing moment I could not help noticing his use of the Christian name. It seemed to me more than sinister." I did not like the idea of dashing young lieutenants in the senior service calling a girl Phyllis whose eyes had haunted me since I had first seen them. Nevertheless, I crawled into the bushes and administered to Aunt Elizabeth a prod in the lower ribs, if hens have lower ribs. The more I study hens, the more things they seem able to get along without, which abruptly disturbed her calm detachment. She shot out at the spot where Mr. Chase was waiting with his coat off, and was promptly enveloped in that garment and captured. "'The essence of strategy,' observed Mr. Chase approvingly, "'is surprise. A neat piece of work.' I thanked him. He deprecated my thanks. He had, he said, only done his duty as expected to by England. He then introduced me to the elderly Irishman, who was, it seemed, a professor at Dublin University, by name Derrick. Whatever it was that he professed, it was something that did not keep him for a great deal of his time at the university. 
he informed me that he always spent his summers at Combe Regis. "'I was surprised to see you at Combe Regis,' I said. "'When you got out at Yeovil, I thought I had seen the last of you.' "'I think I am gifted beyond other men as regards the unfortunate turning of sentences.' "'I meant,' I added, "'I was afraid I had.' "'Ah, of course,' he said. "'You were in our carriage coming down. I was confident I had seen you before. I never forget a face.' "'It would be a kindness,' said Mr. Chase, "'if you would forget Garnet's as now exhibited. You seem to have collected a good deal of the scenery coming through that hedge.' "'I was wondering,' I said, "'a wash, if I might.' "'Of course, me boy, of course,' said the professor. "'Tom, take Mr. Garnet off to your room, and then we'll have lunch. You will stay to lunch, Mr. Garnet.' I thanked him, commented on possible inconvenience to his arrangements, was overruled, and went off with my friend the lieutenant to the house. We imprisoned Aunt Elizabeth in the stables, to her profound indignation, gave directions for lunch to be served to her, and made our way to Mr. Chase's room. "'So you've met the professor before,' he said, hospitably laying out a change of raiment for me. "'We were fortunately much of a height and build.' "'I have never spoken to him,' I said. "'We travelled down from London in the same carriage.' "'He's a dear old boy, if you rub him the right way. "'But, I'm telling you this for your good and guidance, "'a man wants a chart in a strange sea. "'He can cut up rough.' And when he does, he goes off like a 4.7, and the population for miles round climbs trees. I think if I were you, I shouldn't mention Sir Edward Carson at lunch. I promised that I would try to avoid the temptation. In fact, you better keep off Ireland altogether. It's the safest plan. Any other subject you like. Chatty remarks on bimetallism would meet with his earnest attention. A lecture on what to do with the cold mutton would be welcomed. But not Ireland. Shall we go down? We got to know each other at lunch. Do you hunt hens? asked Tom Chase, who was mixing the salad. He was one of those men who seemed to do everything a shade better than anyone else. For amusement, or by your doctor's orders? Many doctors, I believe, insist on it. Neither, I said, and especially not for amusement. The fact is, I've been lured down here by a friend of mine who has started a chicken farm. I was interrupted. All three of them burst out laughing. Tom Chase allowed the vinegar to trickle onto the cloth, missing the salad bowl by a clear two inches. "'You don't mean to tell us,' he said, "'that you really come from the one and only chicken farm? Why, you're the man we've all been praying to meet for days past.' You're the talk of the town, if you can call Combe Regis a town. Everybody is discussing you. Your methods are new and original, aren't they? Probably. Eucridge knows nothing about fowls. I know less. He considers it an advantage. He says our minds ought to be unbiased. Eucridge, said the professor. That was the name old Dolish, the grocer said. I never forget a name. He is the gentleman who lectures on the management of poultry? You do not? I hasten to disclaim any such feat. 
I had never really approved of these infernal talks on the art of chicken-farming which Eucridge had dropped into the habit of delivering when anybody visited our farm. I admit that it was a pleasing spectacle to see my managing director, in a pink shirt without a collar and very dirty flannel trousers, lecturing the intelligent native. But I had a feeling that the thing tended to expose our ignorance to men who had probably had to do with fowls from the cradle up. "'His lectures are very popular,' said Phyllis Derrick, with a little splutter of mirth. "'He enjoys them,' I said. "'Look here, Garnet,' said Tom Chase. "'I hope you won't consider all these questions impertinent, but you've no notion of the thrilling interest we all take, at a distance, in your farm. We have been talking of nothing else for a week. I have dreamed of it three nights running.' Is Mr. Eukridge running this as a commercial speculation, or is he an eccentric millionaire? He's not a millionaire yet, but I believe he intends to be one shortly, with the assistance of the fowls. But you mustn't look on me as in any way responsible for the arrangements at the farm. I am merely a laborer. The brainwork of the business lies in Eukridge's department. As a matter of fact, I came down here principally in search of golf. "'Golf?' said Professor Derrick, with the benevolent approval of the enthusiast towards a brother. "'I'm glad you play golf. We must have a round together.' "'As soon as my professional duties will permit,' I said gratefully. There was croquet after lunch, a game of which I am a poor performer. Phyllis Derrick and I played the professor and Tom Chase. Chase was a little better than myself. The professor, by dint of extreme earnestness and care, managed to play a fair game. And Phyllis was an expert. "'I was reading a book,' she said, as we stood together watching the professor shaping at his ball at the other end of the lawn, "'by an author of the same surname as you, Mr. Garnet. Is he a relation of yours?' "'My name is Jeremy, Miss Derrick.' "'Oh, you wrote it!' She turned a little pink. "'Then you must have—oh, nothing.' "'I couldn't help it, I'm afraid.' "'Did you know what I was going to say?' I guessed. "'You were going to say that I must have heard your criticisms in the train. You were very lenient, I thought. "'I didn't like your heroine.' "'No.' "'What is a creature, Miss Derrick?' Pamela, in your book, is a creature," she replied, unsatisfactorily. Shortly after this, the game came somehow to an end. I do not understand the intricacies of croquet. But Phyllis did something brilliant and remarkable with the balls, and we adjourned for tea. The sun was setting as I left to return to the farm, with Aunt Elizabeth stored neatly in a basket in my hand. The air was deliciously cool and full of that strange quiet which follows soothingly on the skirts of a broiling midsummer afternoon. Far away, seeming to come from another world, a sheep-bell tinkled, deepening the silence. Alone in the sky of the palest blue there gleamed a small, bright star. I addressed this star. She was certainly very nice to me, very nice indeed. The star said nothing. On the other hand, I take it that, having had a decent upbringing, 
she would have been equally polite to any other man whom she had happened to meet at her father's house. Moreover, I don't feel altogether easy in my mind about that naval chap. I fear the worst. The star winked. He calls her Phyllis, I said. Chirac! chuckled Aunt Elizabeth from her basket, in that beastly, cynical, satirical way which has made her so disliked by all right-thinking people. End of chapter 7「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 8 A Little Dinner at Eucridge's. Edwin comes today, said Mrs. Eucridge. And the Derricks said Eugridge, sawing at the bread in his energetic way. "'Don't forget the derricks, Millie.' "'No, dear. Mrs. Beale is going to give us a very nice dinner. We talked it over yesterday.' "'Who is Edwin?' I asked. We were finishing breakfast on the second morning after my visit to the derricks. I had related my adventures to the staff of the farm on my return, laying stress on the merits of our neighbours and their interest in our doings and the hired retainer had been set off next morning with a note from Mrs. Eucridge, inviting them to look over the farm and stay to dinner. "'Edwin,' said Eucridge, "'oh, beast of a cat!' "'Oh, Stanley,' said Mrs. Eucridge plaintively, "'he's not. He's just a dear Mr. Garnet, a beautiful purebred Persian. He has taken prizes.' "'He's always taking something. That's why he didn't come down with us.' "'A great, horrid, beast of a dog bit him, Mr. Garnet. And poor Edwin had to go to a cat's hospital.' "'And I hope,' said Eugridge, "'the experience will do him good. Sneak the dog's dinner, Garnet, under his very nose, if you please. Naturally, the dog lodged a protest. I'm so afraid that he will be frightened of Bob.' He will be very timid, and Bob's so boisterous, isn't he, Mr. Garnet? That's all right, said Eucridge. Bob won't hurt him unless he tries to steal his dinner. In that case, we will have Edwin made into a rug. Stanley doesn't like Edwin, said Mrs. Eucridge sadly. Edwin arrived early in the afternoon and was shut into the kitchen. He struck me as a handsome cat, but nervous. The Derricks followed two hours later. Mr. Chase was not of the party. "'Tom had to go to London,' explained the professor, "'or he would have been delighted to come. It was a disappointment to the boy, for he wanted to see the farm.' "'He must come some other time,' said Eugridge. "'We invite inspection. Look here,' he broke off suddenly. We were nearing the fowl run now, Mrs. Eugridge walking in front with Phyllis Derrick. Were you ever at Bristol? Never, sir, said the professor. Because I knew just such another fat little buffer there a few years ago. Gay old bird he was, he. 
"'This is the foul run, Professor,' I broke in, with a moist, tingling feeling across my forehead and up my spine. I saw the Professor stiffen as he walked, while his face deepened in color. Eukridge's breezy way of expressing himself is apt to electrify the stranger. "'You will notice the able way, ha-ha, in which the wire netting is arranged,' I continued feverishly. "'Took some doing that. By Jove, yes, it was hot work. Nice lot of fowls, aren't they? Rather a mixed lot, of course. Ha-ha. That's the dealer's fault, though. We are getting quite a number of eggs now. Hens wouldn't lay at first, couldn't make them.' I babbled on, till from the corner of my eye I saw the flush fade from the professor's face and his back gradually relax its poker-like attitude. The situation was saved for the moment, but there was no knowing what further excesses Eukridge might indulge in. I managed to draw him aside as we went through the fowl run and expostulated. "'For goodness sake, be careful,' I whispered. "'You've no notion how touchy he is.' "'But I said nothing,' he replied, amazed. "'Hang it! You know, nobody likes to be called a fat little buffer to his face.' "'What? My dear old man, nobody minds a little thing like that. We can't be stilted and formal. It's ever so much more friendly to relax and be chummy.' Here we rejoined the others, and I was left with a leaden foreboding of gruesome things in store. I knew what manner of man Eukridge was when he relaxed and became chummy. Friendships of years' standing had failed to survive the test. For the time being, however, all went well. In his role of lecturer he offended no one, and Phyllis and her father behaved admirably. They received his strangest theories without a twitch of the mouth. "'Ah,' the professor would say, "'now is that really so?' Very interesting indeed. Only once, when Eukridge was describing some more than usually original device for furthering the interests of his fowls, did a slight spasm disturb Phyllis's look of attentive reverence. And you really have no previous experience in chicken farming, she said. None, said Eukridge, beaming through his glasses. Not an atom. But I can turn my hand to anything, you know. Things seem to come naturally to me somehow. I see, said Phyllis. It was while matters were progressing with this beautiful smoothness that I observed the square form of the hired retainer approaching us. Somehow, I cannot say why, I had a feeling that he had come with bad news. Perhaps it was his air of quiet satisfaction which struck me as ominous. "'Beg pardon, Mr. Eukridge, sir?' Eukridge was in the middle of a very eloquent excursus on the feeding of fowls, a subject on which he held views of his own as ingenious as they were novel. The interruption annoyed him. "'Well, Beale," he said, "'what is it?' "'That there cat, sir, what came to-day?' "'Oh, Beale,' cried Mrs. Eukridge in agitation, "'what has happened?' "'Having something to say to the missus. "'What has happened? "'Oh, Beale, don't say that Edwin has been hurt. "'Where is he? "'Oh, poor Edwin!' "'Having something to say to the missus. "'If Bob has bitten him, 
I hope he had his nose well scratched," said Mrs. Eugridge vindictively. "'Having something to say to the missus,' resumed the hired retainer tranquilly, "'I went into the kitchen ten minutes back. The cat was sitting on the mat.' Beale's narrative style closely resembled that of a certain book I had read in my infancy. I wish I could remember its title. It was a well-written book. "'Yes, Beale, yes,' said Mrs. Eucridge. "'Oh, do go on.' "'Hello, puss,' I says to him. "'And how are you?' "'Be careful,' says the missus. "'He's that timid,' she says. "'You wouldn't believe,' she says.' "'He's only just settled down, as you may say,' she says. "'Ho, don't you fret,' I says to her. "'Im and me understands each other. "'Im and me,' I says, "'is old friends. "'He's my dear old pal, Corporal Banks.' "'She grinned at that, ma'am, "'Corporal Banks being a man "'we'd had many a early laugh at in their old days. "'He was, in a manner of speaking, "'a joke between us.' "'Oh, do go on, Beale. What has happened to Edwin?' The hired retainer proceeded in calm, even tones. "'We was talking there, ma'am, when Bob, what had followed me unknown, trotted in. When the cat catched sight of him sniffing about, there was such a spitting and swearing as you never heard. "'And blowed,' said Mr. Beale amusedly, "'Blowed if the old cat didn't give one jump and move in quick time up the chimney, where he now remains, paying no heed to the missus' attempts to get him down again.' "'Sensation,' as they say in the reports. "'But he'll be cooked,' cried Phyllis, open-eyed. "'No, he won't, nor will our dinner. Mrs. Beale always lets the kitchen fire out during the afternoon. And how she's going to light it with that—' There was a pause while one might count three. It was plain that the speaker was struggling with himself. "'That cat,' he concluded safely, "'up the chimney. It's a cold dinner we'll get tonight if that cat doesn't come down.' The professor's face fell. I had remarked on the occasion when I had lunched with him his evident fondness for the pleasures of the table. Cold, impromptu dinners were plainly not to his taste. We went to the kitchen in a body. Mrs. Beale was standing in front of the empty grate, making seductive cat noises up the chimney. "'What's all this, Mrs. Beale?' said Eugridge. "'He won't come down, sir, not while he thinks Bob's about. And how I'm to cook dinner for five with him up the chimney I don't see, sir.' "'Prod at him with the broom-handle, Mrs. Beale,' said Eugridge. "'Oh, don't hurt poor Edwin,' said Mrs. Eugridge. "'I have tried that, sir, but I can't reach him, and I'm only been and drove him up further. "'What must be,' added Mrs. Beale philosophically, "'must be. "'He may come down of his own accord in the night, being hungry.' "'Then what we must do,' said Eucridge in a jovial manner, which to me at least seemed out of place, "'is to have a regular jolly picnic dinner, what? Whack up whatever we have in the larder and eat that.' "'A regular jolly picnic dinner,' repeated the professor gloomily. I could read what was passing in his mind. Remorse for having come at all, and a faint hope that it might not be too late to back out of it. "'That would be splendid,' 
said Phyllis. "'Er, I think, my dear sir,' said her father, "'it would be hardly fair for us to give any further trouble to Mrs. Eukridge and yourself. If you will allow me, therefore, I will—' Eukridge became gushingly hospitable. He refused to think of allowing his guest to go empty away. He would be able to whack up something, he said. There was quite a good deal of the ham left, he was sure. He appealed to me to endorse his view that there was a tin of sardines, and a part of a cold fowl, and plenty of bread and cheese. "'And after all,' he said, speaking for the whole company in the generous, comprehensive way enthusiasts have, "'what more do we want in weather like this? A nice, light, cold dinner is ever so much better for us than a lot of hot things.' We strolled out again into the garden, but somehow things seemed to drag. Conversation was fitful, except on the part of Eukridge, who continued to talk easily on all subjects, unconscious of the fact that the party was depressed and at least one of his guests rapidly becoming irritable. I watched the professor furtively as Eukridge talked on, and that ominous phrase of Mr. Chase's concerning four-point-seven guns kept coming into my mind. If Eugridge were to tread on any of his pet corns, as he might at any minute, there would be an explosion. The snatching of dinner from his very mouth, as it were, and the substitution of a bread-and-cheese and sardines menu had brought him to the frame of mind when men turn and rend their nearest and dearest. The sight of the table, when at length we filed into the dining-room, sent a chill through me. It was a meal for the very young, or the very hungry. The uncompromising coldness and solidity of the viands was enough to appall a man conscious that his digestion needed humoring. A huge cheese faced us in almost a swashbuckling way. I do not know how else to describe it. It wore a blatant, rakish, Nemome impun l'assassie air, and I noticed that the professor shivered slightly as he saw it. Sardines, looking more oily and uninviting than anything I had ever seen, appeared in their native tin beyond the loaf of bread. There was a ham in its third quarter, and a chicken which had suffered heavily during a previous visit to the table. Finally, a black bottle of whiskey stood grimly beside Eukridge's plate. The professor looked like the sort of a man who drank claret of a special year, or nothing. We got through the meal somehow, and did our best to delude ourselves into the idea that it was all great fun, but it was a shallow pretense. The professor was very silent by the time we had finished. Eukridge had been terrible. The professor had forced himself to be genial. He had tried to talk. He had told stories and when he began one, his stories would have been the better for a little more briskness and condensation, Eukridge almost invariably interrupted him before he had got halfway through, without a word of apology, and started on some anecdote of his own. He furthermore disagreed with nearly every opinion the professor expressed. It is true that he did it all in such a perfectly friendly way, and was obviously so innocent of any intention of giving offence that another man, or the same man at a better meal, might have overlooked the matter. But the professor, robbed of his good dinner, was at the stage when he had to attack somebody.
every moment I had been expecting the storm to burst. It burst after dinner. We were strolling in the garden, when some demon urged Eukridge, apropos of the professor's mention of Dublin, to start upon the Irish question. I had been expecting it momentarily, but my heart seemed to stand still when it actually arrived. Eugridge probably knew less about the Irish question than any male adult in the kingdom, but he had boomed forth some very positive opinions of his own on the subject before I could get near enough to him to whisper a warning. When I did, I suppose I must have whispered louder than I had intended, for the professor heard me, and my words acted as the match to the powder. "'He's touchy about Ireland, is he?' he thundered. "'Drop it, is it? And why? Why, sir? I'm one of the best-tempered men that ever came from Dublin, let me tell you, and I will not stay here to be insulted by the insinuation that I cannot discuss Ireland as calmly as anyone in this company or out of it. Touchy about Ireland, is it? Touchy?' "'But, Professor, take your hand off my arm, Mr. Garnet. I will not be treated like a child.' I am as competent to discuss the affairs of Ireland without heat as any man, let me tell you. Father, and let me tell you, Mr. Eukridge, that I consider your opinions poisonous. Poisonous, sir, and you know nothing whatever about the subject, sir. Every word you say betrays your profound ignorance. I don't wish to see you or to speak to you again. Understand that, sir. Our acquaintance began today, and it will cease today. Good night to you, sir. Come, Phyllis, me dear. Mrs. Eukridge, good night. End of chapter 8「『LibriVox』recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org.」Reading by Mark Nelson « Love Among the Chickens » by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 9 – Dias Irae Why is it, I wonder, that stories of retribution calling at the wrong address strike us as funny instead of pathetic? I myself had been amused by them many a time. In a book which I had read only a few days before our cold dinner party, a shopwoman, annoyed with an omnibus conductor, had thrown a superannuated orange at him. It had found its billet not on him, but on a perfectly inoffensive spectator. The missile, said the writer, hit a young copper full in the eyeball. I had enjoyed this when I read it, but now that fate had arranged a precisely similar situation, with myself in the role of the young copper, the fun of the thing appealed to me not at all. It was Eukridge who was to blame for the professor's regrettable explosion and departure, and he ought, by all laws of justice, to have suffered for it. As it was, I was the only person materially affected. It did not matter to Eukridge. He did not care twopence one way or the other. If the professor were friendly, he was willing to talk to him by the hour on any subject, pleasant or unpleasant. If, on the other hand, 
he wished to have nothing more to do with us, it did not worry him. He was content to let it go. Eucridge was a self-sufficing person. But to me it was a serious matter. More than serious. If I had done my work as historian with an adequate degree of skill, the reader should have gathered by this time the state of my feelings. I did not love as others do. None ever did that I've heard tell of. My passion was a byword through the town she was, of course, the belle of. At least it was, fortunately, not quite that, but it was certainly genuine and most disturbing, and it grew with the days. Somebody with a taste for juggling with figures might write a very readable page or so of statistics in connection with the growth of love. In some cases it is, I believe, slow. In my own I can only say that Jack's beanstalk was a backward plant in comparison. It is true that we had not seen a great deal of one another, and that when we had met our interview had been brief and our conversation conventional. But it is the intervals between the meeting that do the real damage. Absence, I do not claim the thought as my own, makes the heart grow fonder. And now, thanks to Eucridge's amazing idiocy, a barrier had been thrust between us. Lord knows the business of fishing for a girl's heart is sufficiently difficult and delicate without the addition of needless obstacles. To cut out the naval miscreant under equal conditions would have been a task ample enough for my modest needs. It was terrible to have to re-establish myself in the good graces of the professor before I could do so much as begin to dream of Phyllis. Eucridge gave me no balm. "'Well, after all,' he said, when I pointed out to him quietly, but plainly my opinion of his tactlessness, "'What does it matter? Old Derrick isn't the only person in the world. If he doesn't want to know us, laddie, we just jolly well pull ourselves together and stagger on without him. It's quite possible to be happy without knowing old Derrick. Millions of people are going about the world at this moment, singing like larks out of pure light-heartedness who don't even know of his existence. And as a matter of fact, old horse, we haven't time to waste making friends and being the social pets. Too much to do on the farm. Strict business is the watchword, my boy. We must be the keen, tense men of affairs, or before we know where we are, we shall find ourselves right in the gumbo. I've noticed, Garney, old horse, that you haven't been the whale for work lately that you might be. You must buckle too, laddie. There must be no slackness. We are at a critical stage. On our work now depends the success of the speculation. Look at those damned cocks. They're always fighting. Heave a stone at them, laddie, while you're up. What's the matter with you? You seem pipped. Can't get the novel off your chest, or what? You take my tip and give your brain a rest. Nothing like manual labor for clearing the brain. All the doctors say so. Those coops ought to be painted today or tomorrow. Mind you, I think old Derrick would be all right if one persevered and didn't call him a fat little buffer and contradict everything he said and spoil all his stories by breaking in with chestnuts of your own in the middle? I interrupted with bitterness. My dear old son, he didn't mind being called a fat little buffer. 
You keep harping on that. It's no discredit to a man to be a fat little buffer. Some of the noblest men I have met have been fat little buffers. What was the matter with old Derrick was a touch of liver. I said to myself, when I saw him eating cheese, that fellow is going to have a nasty shooting pain sooner or later. I say, laddie, just heave another rock or two at those cocks, will you? They'll slay each other. I had hoped, fearing the while that there was not much chance of such a thing happening, that the professor might get over his feeling of injury during the night and be as friendly as ever next day. But he was evidently a man who had no objection whatever to letting the sun go down upon his wrath, for when I met him on the following morning on the beach he cut me in the most uncompromising manner. Phyllis was with him at the time, and also another girl, who was, I supposed, from the strong likeness between them, her sister. She had the same mass of soft brown hair, but to me she appeared almost commonplace in comparison. It is never pleasant to be cut dead, even when you have done something to deserve it. It is like treading on nothing where one imagined a stair to be. In the present instance the pang was mitigated to a certain extent, not largely, by the fact that Phyllis looked at me. She did not move her head, and I could not have declared positively that she moved her eyes, but nevertheless she certainly looked at me. It was something. She seemed to say that duty compelled her to follow her father's lead, and that the act must not be taken as evidence of any personal animus. That, at least, was how I read off the message. Two days later I met Mr. Chase in the village. "'Hullo, so you're back,' I said. "'You've discovered my secret,' he admitted. "'Will you have a cigar or a coconut?' There was a pause. "'Trouble I hear while I was away,' he said. I nodded. "'The man I live with, Eucridge, did what you warned me against, touched on the Irish question.' home rule? He mentioned it, among other things. And the professor went off? Like a bomb. He would. So now you have parted brass rags. It's a pity. I agreed. I am glad to say that I suppressed the desire to ask him to use his influence, if any, with Mr. Derrick to effect a reconciliation. I felt that I must play the game." To request one's rival to give one assistance in the struggle, to the end that he may be the more readily cut out, can hardly be considered cricket. "'I ought not to be speaking to you, you know,' said Mr. Chase. "'You're under arrest.' "'He still—' I stopped for a word. "'Very much so. I'll do what I can. It's very good of you. But the time is not yet ripe.' he may be said at present to be simmering down. I see. Thanks. Good-bye. So long. And Mr. Chase walked on with long strides to the cob. The days passed slowly. I saw nothing more of Phyllis or her sister. The professor I met once or twice on the links. I had taken earnestly to golf in this time of stress. Golf is the game of disappointed lovers. On the other hand, it does not follow that because a man is a failure as a lover he will be any good at all on the links. My game was distinctly poor at first. 
but a round or two put me back into my proper form, which is fair. The professor's demeanour at these accidental meetings on the links was a faithful reproduction of his attitude on the beach. Only by a studied imitation of the absolute stranger did he show that he had observed my presence. Once or twice, after dinner, when Eukridge was smoking one of his special cigars, while Mrs. Eukridge nursed Edwin, now moving in society once more and in his right mind, I lit my pipe and walked out across the fields through the cool summer night till I came to the hedge that shut off the derrick's grounds. Not the hedge through which I had made my first entrance, but another lower and nearer the house. Standing there under the shade of a tree, I could see lighted windows of the drawing-room. Generally there was music inside, and the windows, being opened on account of the warmth of the night, I was able to make myself a little more miserable by hearing Phyllis sing. It deepened the feeling of banishment. I shall never forget those furtive visits. The intense stillness of the night, broken by the occasional rustling in the grass or the hedge, the smell of the flowers in the garden beyond, the distant drone of the sea. God makes such nights all white and still, for as used to look and listen. Another day had generally begun before I moved from my hiding-place and started for home, surprised to find my limbs stiff and my clothes bathed with dew. End of chapter 9「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org.」Reading by Mark Nelson Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 10 I Enlist the Services of a Minion it would be interesting to know to what extent the work of authors is influenced by their private affairs. If life is flowing smoothly, are the novels they write in that period of content colored with optimism? And if things are running crosswise, do they work off the resultant gloom on their faithful public? If, for instance, Mr. W. W. Jacobs had a toothache, would he write like Hugh Walpole? If Maxim Gorky were invited to lunch by Trotsky to meet Lenin, would he sit down and dash off a trifle in the vein of Stephen Leacock? Probably the eminent have the power of detaching their writing self from their living workaday self, but, for my own part, the frame of mind in which I now found myself had a disastrous effect on my novel that was to be. I had designed it as a light comedy effort here and there a page or two to steady the reader and show him what I could do in the way of pathos if I cared to try, but in the main a thing of sunshine and laughter. But now great slabs of gloom began to work themselves into the scheme of it. A magnificent despondency became its keynote. It would not do. I felt that I must make a resolute effort to shake off my depression. 
More than ever the need of conciliating the professor was borne in upon me. Day and night I spurred my brain to think of some suitable means of engineering a reconciliation. In the meantime I worked hard among the fowls, drove furiously on the links, and swam about the harbour when the affairs of the farm did not require my attention. Things were not going well on our model chicken farm. Little accidents marred the harmony of life in the fowl run. On one occasion a hen, not Aunt Elizabeth, I am sorry to say, fell into a pot of tar and came out an unspeakable object. Eukridge put his spare pair of tennis shoes in the incubator to dry them, and permanently spoiled the future of half a dozen eggs which happened to have got there first. Chickens kept straying into the wrong coops, where they got badly pecked by the residents. Edwin slew a couple of Wyandots, and was only saved from execution by the tears of Mrs. Eukridge. In spite of these occurrences, however, his buoyant optimism never deserted Eukridge. After all, he said, what's one bird more or less? Yes, I know I made a fuss when that beast of a cat lunched off those two, but that was simply the principle of the thing. I'm not going to pay large sums for chickens purely in order that a cat, which I've never liked, can lunch well. Still, we've plenty left, and the eggs are coming in better now, though we've still a deal of leeway to make up yet in that line. I got a letter from Whiteley's this morning asking when my first consignment was going to arrive. You know, these people make a mistake in hurrying a man. It annoys him. It irritates him. When we really get going, Garney, my boy, I shall drop Whiteley's. I shall cut them out of my list and send my eggs to their trade rivals. They shall have a sharp lesson. It's a little hard. Here am I, worked to death looking after things down here, and these men have the impertinence to bother me about their wretched business. Come in and have a drink, laddie, and let's talk it over. It was on the morning after this that I heard him calling me in a voice in which I detected agitation. I was strolling about the paddock, as was my habit after breakfast, thinking about Phyllis and trying to get my novel into shape. I had just framed a more than usually murky scene for use in the earlier part of the book when Eukridge shouted to me from the fowl run. "'Garney, come here! I want you to see the most astounding thing!' "'What's the matter?' I asked. "'Blast if I know! Look at these chickens! They've been doing that for the last half-hour!' I inspected the chickens. There was certainly something the matter with them. They were yawning, broadly, as if we bored them. They stood about singly and in groups, opening and shutting their beaks. It was an uncanny spectacle. "'What's the matter with them?' "'Can a chicken get a fit of the blues?' I asked. "'Because if so, that's what they've got. "'I've never seen a more bored-looking lot of birds.' "'Oh, do look at that poor little brown one by the coop,' said Mrs. Eukridge, sympathetically. "'I'm sure it's not well. See, it's lying down. What can be the matter with it?' "'I'll tell you what we'll do,' said Eukridge. 
we'll ask Beale. He once lived with an aunt who kept fowls. He'll know all about it. Beale? No answer. Beale? A sturdy form in shirt-sleeves appeared through the bushes, carrying a boot. We seemed to have interrupted him in the act of cleaning it. Beale, you know all about fowls. What's the matter with these chickens? The hired retainer examined the blasé birds with a wooden expression on his face. Well, said Eugridge. The old thing here, said the hired retainer, is these ere fowls have been and got the roop. I had never heard of the disease before, but it sounded bad. Is that what makes them yawn like that? said Mrs. Eugridge. Yes, ma'am. Poor things. Yes, ma'am. And have they all got it? Yes, ma'am. What ought we to do? asked Eugridge. Well, my aunt, sir, when her fowls had the roop, she gave them snuff. Gave them snuff, she did, he repeated with relish, every morning. Snuff? said Mrs. Eugridge. Yes, ma'am. She gave them snuff till their eyes bubbled. Mrs. Eucridge uttered a faint squeak at this vivid piece of word-painting. "'And did it cure them?' asked Eucridge. "'No, sir,' responded the expert soothingly. "'Oh, go away, Beale, and clean your beastly boots,' said Eucridge. "'You're no use. Wait a minute. Who would know about this infernal roop thing? One of those farmer chaps would, I suppose. Beale! Go off to the nearest farmer, and give him my compliments, and ask him what he does when his fowls get the roop. Yes, sir. No, I'll go, Eucridge, I said. I want some exercise. I whistled to Bob, who was investigating a mole-heap in the paddock, and set off in the direction of the village of Uplime, to consult Farmer Lee on the matter. He had sold us some fowls shortly after our arrival, so might be expected to feel a kindly interest in their ailing families. The path to Uplime lies across deep-grassed meadows. At intervals it passes over a stream by means of a footbridge. The stream curls through the meadows like a snake. And at the first of these bridges I met Phyllis. I came upon her quite suddenly. The other end of the bridge was hidden from my view. I could hear somebody coming through the grass, but not till I was on the bridge did I see who it was. We reached the bridge simultaneously. She was alone. She carried a sketching block. All nice girls sketch a little. There was room for one alone on the footbridge, and I drew back to let her pass. It being the privilege of woman to make the first sign of recognition, I said nothing. I merely lifted my hat in a non-committing fashion. "'Are you going to cut me, I wonder?' I said to myself. She answered the unspoken question as I hoped it would be answered. "'Mr. Garnet,' she said, stopping at the end of the bridge. A pause. "'I couldn't tell you so before, but I am so sorry this has happened.' "'Oh, thanks awfully,' I said, realizing as I said it the miserable inadequacy of the English language. At a crisis, when I would have given a month's income to have said something neat, epigrammatic, suggestive, yet withal courteous and respectful, I could only find a hackneyed, 
unenthusiastic phrase, which I should have used in accepting an invitation from a bore to lunch with him at his club. Of course, you understand, my friends must be my father's friends. Yes, I said so gloomily, I suppose so. So you must not think me rude if I, I... Cut me, said I, with masculine coarseness. Don't seem to see you, said she, with feminine delicacy, when I am with my father. You will understand? I shall understand. You see, she smiled, you are under arrest, as Tom says. Tom! I see, I said. Good-bye, good-bye. I watched her out of sight, and went on to interview Mr. Lee. We had a long and intensely uninteresting conversation about the maladies to which chickens are subject. He was verbose and reminiscent. He took me over his farm, pointing out as we went dorkings with pasts, and Cochin Chinas, which he had cured of diseases generally fatal, on, as far as I could gather, Christian science principles. I'd left, at last, with instructions to paint the throats of the stricken birds with turpentine, a task imagination boggled at, and one which I proposed to leave exclusively to Eucridge and the hired retainer, and also a slight headache. A visit to the cob would, I thought, do me good. I had missed my bathe that morning, and was in need of a breath of sea air. It was high tide, and there was deep water on three sides of the cob. In a small boat in the offing, Professor Derrick appeared, fishing. I had seen him engaged in this pursuit once or twice before. His only companion was a gigantic boatman, by name Harry Hawk, possibly a descendant of the gentleman of that name, who went to Whittacombe Fair with Bill Brewer and old Uncle Tom Cobley and all, on a certain memorable occasion, and assisted at the fatal accident to Tom Pierce's grey mare. I sat on the seat at the end of the cob and watched the professor. It was an instructive sight, an object lesson to those who hold that optimism has died out of the race. I had never seen him catch a fish. He never looked to me as if he were at all likely to catch a fish, yet he persevered. There are few things more restful than to watch someone else busy under a warm sun. As I sat there, my pipe drawing nicely as the result of certain explorations conducted that morning with a straw, my mind ranged idly over large subjects and small. I thought of love and chicken farming. I mused on the immortality of the soul and the deplorable speed at which two ounces of tobacco disappeared. In the end, I always returned to the professor. Sitting, as I did, with my back to the beach, I could see nothing but his boat. It had the ocean to itself. I began to ponder over the professor. I wondered dreamily if he were very hot. I tried to picture his boyhood. I speculated on his future and the pleasure he extracted from life. It was only when I heard him call out to Hawk to be careful, when a movement on the part of that oarsman set the boat rocking, that I began to weave romances round him in which I myself figured. 
but, once started, I progressed rapidly. I imagined a sudden upset. Professor struggling in water. Myself, heroically. Courage, I'm coming! A few rapid strokes. Saved! Sequel, a subdued professor, dripping salt water and tears of gratitude, urging me to become his son-in-law. That sort of thing happened in fiction. It was a shame that it should not happen in real life. In my hot youth, I once had seven stories in seven weekly penny papers in the same month, all dealing with a situation of the kind. Only the details differed. In Not Really a Coward, Vincent Devereux had rescued the Earl's daughter from a fire, whereas in Hilda's Hero it was the peppery old father whom Tom Slingsby saved, singularly enough, from drowning. In other words, I, a very mediocre scribbler, had effected seven times in a single month what the powers of the universe could not manage once, even on the smallest scale. It was precisely three minutes to twelve, I had just consulted my watch, that the great idea surged into my brain. At four minutes to twelve I had been grumbling impotently at Providence. By two minutes to twelve I had determined upon a manly and independent course of action. Briefly, it was this. Providence had failed to give satisfaction. I would, therefore, cease any connection with it and start a rival business on my own account. After all, if you want a thing done well, you must do it yourself. In other words, since a dramatic accident and rescue would not happen of its own accord, I would arrange one for myself. Hawk looked to me the sort of man who would do anything in a friendly way for a few shillings. I had now to fight it out with conscience. I quote the brief report, which subsequently appeared in the Recording Angel. Three-round contest, Conscience, Celestial, B.C., v. J. Garnet, unattached. Round one. Conscience came to the scratch smiling and confident, led off lightly with a statement that it would be bad for a man of the professor's age to get wet. Garnet countered heavily, alluding to the warmth of the weather and the fact that the professor habitually enjoyed a bathe every day. Much sparring. Conscience not quite so confident, and apparently afraid to come to close quarters with this man. Time called, with little damage done. Round two. Conscience, much freshened by the half-minute's rest, fainted with the charge of deceitfulness, and nearly got home heavily with, what would Phyllis say if she knew? Garnet, however, sidestepped cleverly with, but she won't know, and followed up the advantage with a damaging, besides, it's all for the best. The round ended with a brisk rally on general principles, Garnet crowding in a lot of work, Conscience down twice and only saved by the call of time. Round three and last. Conscience came up very weak, and with Garnet as strong as ever, it was plain that the round would be a brief one. This proved to be the case. Early in the second minute, Garnet cross-countered with, All's fair in love and war. Conscience down and out. The winner left the ring without a mark. I rose, feeling much refreshed. That afternoon, I interviewed Mr. Hawk in the bar parlor of the Net and Mackerel.
"'Hawk,' I said to him darkly, over a mystic and conspirator-like pot of ale, "'I want you, next time you take Professor Derrick out fishing—' Here I glanced round, to make sure that we were not overheard. "'To upset him.' His astonished face rose slowly from the pot of ale, like a full moon. "'What'd I do that for?' he gasped. Five shillings, I hope,' said I, "'but I am prepared to go ten. He gurgled. I encored his pot of ale. He kept gurgling. I argued with the man. I spoke splendidly. I was eloquent, but at the same time concise. My choice of words was superb. I crystallized my ideas into pithy sentences which a child could have understood. And at the end of half an hour he had grasped the salient points of the scheme. Also, he imagined that I wished the professor upset by way of a practical joke. He gave me to understand that this was the type of humour which was to be expected from a gentleman from London. I am afraid he must at one period in his career have lived at one of those watering-places at which trippers congregate. He did not seem to think highly of the Londoner. I let it rest at that. I could not give my true reason, and this served as well as any. At the last moment he recollected that he too would get wet when the accident took place, and he raised the price to a sovereign. A mercenary man! It is painful to see how rapidly the old simple spirit is dying out of our rural districts. Twenty years ago a fisherman would have been charmed to do a little job like that for a screw of tobacco. End of chapter 10。As the new year unfolds, make it a year of comfort and indulgence with Minky Couture. Wrap yourself in the lap of luxury with our exquisite blankets. Picture the cozy moments, the warmth of our premium materials, and the stylish designs that define Minky Couture. Welcome the new year with the ultimate in comfort and sophistication. January is your month to embrace luxury. Visit MinkyCouture.com or your nearest store today. Elevate your comfort, elevate your style with Minky Couture.